Hello, this is the Blood and the Bluegrass podcast. I'm Jess, your host, and this podcast dives into some of Kentucky's most heinous murders and puzzling missing persons cases. This is episode two of the Blood and the Bluegrass podcast. We are focusing on Robert Carl Foley, who is described as the most prolific killer of Kentucky. So, Robert Carl Foley was born on September 13th to Lois and John Bill Foley of Mary Alice, Kentucky. His father worked two jobs to support the family. He worked at a local landfill, and he also drove a coal truck. Uh, Foley's brother, John, says that they had a hard time growing up, just like most people in Harlan County. Eastern Kentucky has more lower income areas, and I imagine that since the coal companies basically ran the towns back then, that um, that was one of the reasons they were trying to keep people working. Um, His brother also says that he grew up hard. It isn't an excuse, but you live hard, you live tough. Foley attended James A. Kaywood High School, but dropped out in his sophomore year. His life of crime began when he was 19 years old. In April of 1976, Foley and two of his friends were out driving Um, and they drove past a group of young guys, and apparently the guys began shouting, uh, obscenities at them, so they stopped the car, and then the, there was a fight that broke out, and once they got the fight broken up, witnesses said that they saw Foley walk back to the car, and come back with a revolver and started shooting at the group of guys. Zettler Field Jr. was killed. He was only 22 years old at the time, and there were two other young men in the group who were struck as well and who suffered serious injuries. Foley's buddies stood and watched in horror as Foley opened fire. One of his friends would later testify that he heard Foley laughing while he was shooting. And if that's not evil, I'm not sure I know what is. In April of 1977, a year after the shooting, he was convicted of killing Fields and he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. He was sent to the Kentucky State Reformatory in LaGrange, Kentucky, which is just outside of Louisville. He only served four years of his sentence before being granted parole in 1981. Um, They hint that he had become an FBI informant, and that is why he only served four years. Sergeant Ron Tack of the Ottawa County, Ohio Sheriff's Department said he has a way of intimidating people. 
I'm not saying law enforcement, but his family and people on the outside. Sergeant Tack uh, came in contact with Foley when he was investigating a case where Foley had shot a man in a bar. And he was convicted of that crime in 1984. In many cases, including that case, um, it is said that Foley and or his family members were accused of threatening witnesses. And I feel like this seems to be a pattern with his family. Uh, for that crime, he served a 15-month prison term for the assault and also illegal possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He was then released in 1985 at 28 years old. In an article for the Courier-Journal, a newspaper located in Louisville, the author said Robert Foley nor any of his family members would speak with him on anything. They completely refused to talk. And uh, they said that they tried to reach out to people from Harlan and they also refused to say anything. Um, but Michael Pennington, who was an acquaintance of Foley, says, you hear people talk about him, but when it comes to saying anything in public, people just clam up. And uh, Pennington's father, Delbert, sustained brain damage after being pistol whipped by Foley and one of his brothers in a local restaurant in 1988. At the time the article was written, the charges against Foley were pending. So, even with his early life, we see a pattern. And it's not, I feel like it's more environment and the people he was around. Um, because apparently in Harlan County, the fear of his kin stretched farther back before he began his life of crime. Foley's grandfather and step-grandmother killed a Harlan County Sheriff's deputy. At the time, Robert Foley was only 12 years old. So Sam Pennington and his wife Juanita were convicted of the murder in November 1968. The apparent reason that they killed the Har one of the Harlan County Sheriff's deputies was because their son Frank was arrested for causing a disturbance at a school festival. That just seems like a terrible reason to kill someone over, but... Anyway, his grandparents, Sam and Juanita, stopped behind uh, the sheriff's deputy, Oscar Burkhart's cruiser, at a stoplight. They jumped out of their car and proceeded to get into an argument with Burkhart. Juanita was known to carry a 45 pistol in the belt of her skirt 
and shot Deputy Burkhart several times. Sam also fired several shots into the car as well. And it seems to me that evil runs in this family. Foley is described as manipulative and intelligent. And honestly, I really believe that he is a psychopath. And this is just based on what I've discussed so far. But it does get worse. In October of 1989, Foley will commit his first mass murder. The bodies of the victims won't be found until two years after the murders in a septic tank on a property in the Bald Rock community of Laurel County. These victims would later be identified as Kim Bowersock, Lillian Contino, Jerry McMillan, and Calvin Reynolds. Bowersock, Contino, and McMillan were from Van Wert, Ohio. Calvin Reynolds, who was Bowersock's boyfriend, lived in Laurel County not far from where his body would later be found. The property the bodies were found on at the time of the murder it was still in Murphy Gross's widow's name but it would later be um, deeded over to John Foley, Robert Foley's father. Later, Foley would admit that he was the actual owner of the property, even though the title was in his father's name. The property was put into Foley's father's name to protect from a judgment creditor. The Murphy Gross property was adjacent to a property owned in 1989 by Murphy Gross's nephew, David Gross. Gordon Cantor had previously lived in the cabin, and Gross and Cantor grew marijuana on the property. There's substantial evidence that Foley, Gross, Cantor, and Paul Butch Riley, which his name will come up later, engaged in many criminal enterprises together. On October 8th of 1989, which is the last day the four victims were seen, Bowersock planned to go down to Laurel County to pick up Calvin Reynolds, her boyfriend, and bring him back to Ohio. Bowersock's cousin, Teresa Dunsell, said she was trying to find her ride down to Kentucky. Um, she had originally said that she would go with Bowersock, but something came up. She ended up having to go to work or something similar to that. Um, but she said that she would try to find someone to give her a ride. And they asked Lillian Contino 
but her car wasn't working at the time, but she said that if they could find a ride, she would go with them. Jerry McMillan ended up agreeing to drive the women down to Kentucky. Calvin Reynolds was supposed to meet them at David Gross's cabin, who was an associate of Foley's. When Bowersock, Contino, and McMillan arrived at the cabin, only Gross and Gordon Canner were there. Apparently, Reynolds had returned to his home. So they went back to Reynolds' house and picked him up and then came back to the Gross cabin. Cantor telephoned Foley that Bowersock was in the area. According to Cantor, Foley had a grudge against Bowersock because he believed she had informed his parole officer that he was selling drugs and illegally moonshining. Foley was heard saying he was going to, quote, kick her ass. He then asked Cantor how many people were with Bowersock and told him to bring his guns. Three other witnesses that were with Foley at the time of the call confirmed Canner's version of the statement. Foley's ex-wife, Marjorie, would testify that he told her when he left that night that if he didn't return by morning, that he would either be dead or in jail, and that she should call his parents in Harlan. So the next morning when Foley did not return to his home, she had called his parents who then drove to Laurel County to investigate. Foley and Canner arrived at David Gross's cabin shortly after 11.30 p.m. on October 8th. Those present in the cabin at the time when they arrived were Bowersock, Reynolds, Contino, McMillan, David Gross, his live-in partner Phoebe Watts, and her two young children. Canner and Watts testified that immediately upon entering the cabin, Foley walked straight to Bowersock and grabbed her by the hair. When her boyfriend, Reynolds, arose to help her, Foley shot him with the 9mm pistol. He then shot Bowersock, Contino, and McMillan. He then pointed the gun at Gross, but didn't shoot when he began begging for his life. And it doesn't really say as far as why he pointed the gun at David Gross. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll hear David Gross later on. And it, it may make more sense. Um, so Foley then turned back to Bowersock and shot her in the head. Which, I mean, she was already dead, so overkill. After the murders, Foley, Gross, and Canner confiscated the victims' valuables and removed their bodies from the cabin to a log hauling trailer. 
Watts then cleaned up the cabin while the three men took McMillan's car to Lexington and abandoned it in a motel parking lot. Canner testified that Foley called a repair shop imitating Calvin Reynolds and asked that the vehicle be picked up for repairs and that he would pick it up at a later date. Canner said he never saw the vehicle again. The men returned to Gross's cabin and slept till the following day. The next night, they removed the victim's bodies from the trailer. They placed them in the Murphy Gross septic tank and covered them with lime and cement. So, in October of 1990, David Gross was shot and killed in a murder that is still unsolved to this day. In November of 2000, the murder case was listed as unsolved or cold. My feeling is that Foley did it himself or he had someone else do it for him. Because he's a very good intimidator. And honestly... I'm leaning more towards that he killed Gross just for the simple fact that I feel like he's kind of like that egomaniac. I mean, he pointed the gun at Gross right after he killed Bowersock, Contino, McMillan, and Reynolds. So, I feel that he probably did it himself. So, two years later, on August 17th of 1991, Foley was having a party at his home. There were a decent amount of partygoers, and the partygoers included the Vaughn brothers, um, Rodney and Lynn. And everything seemed fine, seemed like everybody was having a good time, they were drinking, but sometimes tempers flare when there's alcohol involved. And uh, tempers flared between Foley and Rodney Vaughn. And both were very intoxicated, and they both became belligerent. Foley instigated the fight by punching Rodney Vaughn. And after the initial altercation, one of the party guests separated them. And then things seemed to calm down, and the men continued drinking at the kitchen table. The situation escalated and Rodney was anticipating another punch from Foley, so he told him not to punch him again. And Foley began punching Rodney several times, knocking him to the ground. Foley then pulled out a revolver from his waistband and shot Rodney Vaughn six times at close range, striking him in the chest, left arm, and back.
most of the partygoers took off during the fight, leaving Foley, the Vaughn brothers, and Ronnie Duggar in the home. As the only living eyewitness besides Foley, Duggar said Foley went into the kitchen and grabbed another gun. He returned to the living room where Lynn Vaughn was kneeling at his brother's side, holding his brother. Foley shot Lynn in the back of the head. He then kicked Rodney Vaughn's corpse, saying, You son of a bitch, you caused me to have to kill my partner. Later, Foley was heard saying he hated to kill Lynn, but blood is sicker than water. And from all the research that I've done on Foley, he, he just keeps escalating. And it doesn't seem like it really takes that much to make him mad enough to kill you. He is, I mean, it takes a very cold-hearted person to shoot two brothers and just kick their corpse and I just, he, is, he has to be the most cold-hearted person I've ever seen. Um, but back to the story. Foley then organized Ronnie Duggar, Bill Duggar, and Danny Joe Bryant to assist in disposing the bodies and covering up the crime. They dumped the Wan brothers' bodies in the Sinking Creek in Laurel County and attempted to cover of the incident and point fingers at other people. Police discovered the bodies two days later and they indicted Foley on two counts of capital murder and related offenses. After Foley was arrested, Tanner, who had been living in Arizona, and Watts, who had moved to Tennessee, independently went to police and essentially told the same story. Foley wouldn't file a single motion during the killing of the Vaughn brothers, but he received two death sentences on September 2nd of 1993 for the murders of the Vaughn brothers. Foley would later be charged with the murders of Kim Bowersock, Lillian Contino, Jerry McMillan, and Calvin Reynolds after they were found in the septic tank. He brings up motion after motion in the court and the murder of the four young people. One of the motions that did get approved was for a change of venue. And that trial began in April of 1994 in Madison County. Foley was trying to get a motion for a new trial approved when he said he received an anonymous letter in the mail in October of 1996. This letter supposedly expressed the theory that David Gross and Gordon Canner were the ones who killed Bowersock, Contino, McMillan, and Reynolds. 
The motive was because the victims had stolen a lot of marijuana from Gross. It also said that the victims weren't shot in Gross's cabin, but in McMillan's car, which had been torn apart. The car seats burned, car doors burned, and deposited in a valley referred to locally as the Egg. The letter said the rest of the car was compacted at a Laurel County salvage yard. When Foley presented the information to his lawyer, the attorney told him it wasn't enough for a new trial. Foley later produced a typed letter from Paul Butch Riley dated May 17th of 1997, less than 30 days after the rendition of the court's opinion affirming Foley's conviction and sentence. The letter was signed, Always and Ever Your Friend and Brother Butch. Both Foley and Riley were inmates at Eddyville State Prison, and during the summer of 1994, while Riley was in the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, he claimed to have a phone conversation with Gordon Canner, who he claimed was at the Grand Hotel in Hamilton, Ohio, and that Canner had told him that Foley hadn't committed the Baldrock murders. Riley's letter didn't state that Canner had committed the murders himself, but I imagine that's what he was implying. Canner denies having the conversation and ever staying at the Grand Hotel. An affidavit of Linda Sheehan confirmed that she forwarded the calls to the Grand Hotel where Riley's mother was a bartender. Sheehan said that she did not state she forwarded any calls to Gordon Canner. Riley's letter was reduced to an affidavit, so I'm going to read that verbatim. Gordon said he had to go to court and testify against Foley, and it was bugging him. That it was a way of coming clean and out from under it. Gordon said he had to go to court against Bob Foley on four murder charges. I asked him what was up, and he said they had Foley on two other murder charges, and he was going to fry anyhow. And besides, if Foley had have been there, he would have been in on it anyway. Gordon said the ones that got killed had it coming because they stole a lot of pot from Dave Gross. He also said Foley had got Dave killed on a bad dope deal. Gordon told me he and Dave stashed the bodies in a trailer and later buried them in an old septic tank. They used lime to eat up the bodies. Gordon even mentioned getting rid of part of the car in the egg pit and burning it. That the rest of the car went to the junkyard and was crushed. I asked Gordon how many people was it that Foley had supposed to have killed. Gordon said, as far as he knew, just the two brothers in London. 
I said, so he didn't kill the four in the septic tank, and Gordon said, no, he didn't, but it didn't matter. He was going to fry anyhow. Foley's final item of newly discovered evidence is the affidavit of his step-cousin, Chris Allen. According to Allen, he proceeded at Foley's direction to a 70-foot cliff above a section of the egg. After rappelling down the cliff, Allen discovered two rusty car doors, which appeared to have been burned. Each door contained two holes, which Allen thought could be bullet holes. Allen then discovered what he believed to be an automobile ignition key, a post office box key, and a set of dog tags that weren't standard military issue. He found these items inside one of the door panels. The dog tags contained the name, address, social security number, and date of birth of Jerry McMillan. McMillan's father and brother confirmed that McMillan owned occasionally wore them. He hoisted the car doors out and took them to a mechanic. The mechanic compared them and said they possibly came from a 1975 Chevy Malibu. The record contains several descriptions of McMillan's vehicle, none of which identify it as a Malibu. Cantor testified he thought the car he drove to Lexington was a Chevelle. McMillan's mother filed a missing persons report in 1989 describing her son's vehicle as a 1975 Chevy Nova. Bowersock's mother told police that her daughter left Ohio on October 8th of 1989 in a Pontiac Le Mans with Ohio tag number 567RTP. It is unclear if the police had been led to the egg to find the doors, but I find there's a big possibility that if they did, they were probably planted. So to me, this is this is just Foley using his intimidation tactics, getting people to say what he wants them to say. Um, I haven't found any articles or reports detailing the parts of McMillan's car that was found. In fact, at the time of the trial, the police hadn't tracked down the car. But honestly, it seems like nobody knew what kind of car it actually was. I mean, is it a Malibu? a Chevelle, a Nova, or a Pontiac Le Mans. And I didn't find any evidence in any of the articles that I saw and read that even touched on what it what the car model was. 
so we may never know. And in the original trial, Foley's attorney posited that Cantor and David Gross had killed the four victims because Foley was already in jail. Cantor denied a longtime friend of Foley's, Mel Crockett Stevens, testified that Cantor told him in spring of 1990 that David Gross had offed some people after ripping them off. Cantor produced a letter from Stevens dated July 14, 1997, in which Stevens urged Cantor to blame Gross for the murders because Dave is dead and no one needs to protect him any longer. My question with this information is if Stevens was Foley's longtime friend, then why wasn't he called as a witness for Foley's defense? Especially with information such as this, it doesn't make sense for him to come out afterwards and say, oh yeah, I received this letter and, you know, I was told that David Gross had killed the people. It's, it's intimidation tactics and I'm sure Foley was at the center of it. So, the affidavits were considered impeaching and not sufficient for a new trial. In 2004, Joe White signed an affidavit saying he saw Calvin Reynolds the day after he was murdered. Charles Goins signed an affidavit in 2005 saying he, was, he saw Calvin Reynolds on the porch of the cabin with David Gross the day after the murder. And he also claims that he witnessed Gross shoot Reynolds. Another affidavit in May of 2009 uh, was signed by Charles Nance. He claimed that he saw all four victims alive the day after they were murdered. The court said these affidavits were filled with inconsistencies and the men had questionable credibility. Since two of the three men were convicted criminals who withheld the statements from law enforcement for over 10 years. So Foley claimed he was denied effective assistance of counsel because his trial counsel failed to fully investigate his background and did not produce any mitigating evidence during the penalty phase of the trial. He contends that his counsel should have called six family members, five friends, and a school teacher who had not seen him since the 1970s to testify on his behalf. The Kentucky Supreme Court reviewed and denied it as they should. Robert Carl Foley is a manipulative narcissist 
that thrived on intimidating witnesses and used fear to incite compliance. Honestly, I am surprised that I have never heard of this killer, considering he has been convicted of killing seven people and he is thought to have killed more. He has been on death row for almost 27 years and out of the 33 people who are currently on death row, Foley has the highest body count. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider following me on Instagram at Blood in the Bluegrass Podcast and also on Facebook. Just search for Blood in the Bluegrass. And remember, you're more likely to be killed by someone you know.